I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. United States wine history is varied and unique, and it dates back pretty far. In previous segments, we've explored how some of the first vines in California were mission vines planted by Spanish missionaries. And we've talked a little bit about Thomas Jefferson's experiments with vineyards, and also about how, more recently, Constantine Frank pushed for vinifera vines in the East Coast area in the 1950s. But one part of U.S. wine history that is often overlooked is the contributions of Italians who came over in the late 1800s and early 1900s in search of a better life. Many brought winemaking traditions with them from Italy, and there are several elements in U.S. wine culture today that can be traced back, usually through Ellis Island, to Italy. Well, today, I have a different sort of dad tale for you. Over the holidays, I sat down with my father-in-law, who told me about how his grandfather made wine in the basement of a townhouse in Brooklyn, and how that wine was the toast of the neighborhood. And I grew up in Brooklyn, and my grandfather used to make wine in the basement of an Italian slum, 993 Pacific Street. Grandpa learned to make wine in Naples, outside of Naples where he had his farm. His dad had his farm. His father was a carmine. And uh, Grandpa used to tell me stories about, well, back in Italy, if you had a farm, you didn't live on the farm. You lived in the town. And his job as a boy was to walk the mules out to the land from the town. And uh, his father taught him how. And uh, so that's where he learned. And he come over here as a young man, as a young boy, a teenager, uh, at the turn of the century. Yeah. And then the father come over. Through Ellis and everything? Yes, through, oh, definitely through Ellis. In fact, us kids got together, grandchildren got together and bought him a brick. Wow. Put his name on it. And if you look at the, the census records, they just butchered their names and everything. Grandpa used to go out to Jersey to get his grapes, and he made wine all during the Depression. He come to this country at the turn of the century, but he made wine all during the Depression because they allowed Italians to have wine because it was a cultural thing. And or even during the, the prohibition, they could have the wine. And it was 
very much sought after by all the people uh, in the neighborhood. And my, he would have this big wooden grape press. It was wooden, all right? And the, to a young person, the most prominent feature of it was what I call the propeller, which was the big wooden uh, arm, both sides of the, of the screw. It was an Acme Threads. And uh, it was, to my eyes, was huge. And if, if I were to see it now, it probably wouldn't be that big. <laughs> but to me, it was as big as could be. A uh, big screw that you turn that thing and it pushed the, the, the lid down onto the grapes and squeezed the grapes and the grape juice would come out the bottom. And then my aunts, who hated the job, had a stomp on the grapes at the end of it. And they were young, and they hated it. <laughs> but they had to do it. I, well, he had five daughters and one son, my father. <laughs> so my aunts had to do it. And Grandpa would bottle it in whatever he could. He had, he had barrels, and he would uh, pour it out of the barrels. He had spouts, spigots, and uh, he would put it in the bottles and stuff. After it fermented the proper amount of time. And his favorite expression was, you can't cook it too much, and you can't cook it too little. And it was, you would put it in Heinz ketchup bottles or whatever was handy, and people just would do anything for Grandpa's wine. And it was in this, and again, 993 Pacific Street back in the, it almost doesn't exist now because the whole neighborhood's been torn down. It was strict Sicilian Napolitan neighborhood. And, uh... It was a dirt floor. Uh, again, it was a. It was, it was an Italian. It was a slum. It was not high-end living. But uh, Grandpa had that going on in the thing, and uh, yeah, it was just so great. I mean, uh, to grow up with it. He didn't care for white wine at all, and it would be the cardinal sin, a mortal sin, if you ever put ice in his wine. But. And uh, they would, at the end of a big dinner, they would, uh, in the summertime especially, they would make this uh, big bowl of the red wine, and they put peaches and oranges and all this other, these other kind of fruits in it. And uh, they would let me have that. And uh, it was just so good. And uh, yeah, Grandpa's wine it would go down, and it would make you sit down. <laughs> It's not enough to make great wine. You also have to reach the consumer that appreciates that wine. And that's where Offset is an incredible asset. Offset is an independent brand design and commerce technology company that connects with wineries on a human level to help them connect with consumers on a human level. Offset is based in wine country and staffed by creative strategists and technologists who are superb at helping create and evolve wine brands through visual identity and package design, developing the look, feel, and tone of your web content, as well as building beautiful and effective websites powered by their proprietary e-commerce platform, Offset Commerce. That's why leaders like Frog Sleep, Grace Family Vineyards, and Rain Winery already rely on Offset. Reach out to the brilliant team at Offset at 
offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T partners with an S.com. Offset is focused on the wine industry and can embrace the nuanced needs of your wine brand. Jeff Kellogg on the show. Myelina, hello, sir. How are you? I'm great. How are you today, Levy? Nice to see you. Yeah, good to see you as well. So where'd you grow up? Uh, Canton, Ohio. What was that like? Big wine town? A huge wine town. Nothing but. Uh, you know, it's a middle-sized town in Ohio and uh, not a ton going on in the wine scene there. But, you know, to be honest with you, just left when I was 18. I think like a lot of kids that grow up in small towns and, and want to get out and do bigger things. So left for school and never really came back. But a great place to be from is uh is the cliche I would use. Your family's from wine background? or No, uh, not at all. I was, it's a big family. I was the youngest of six. Um, and we would, you know, have dinner together every night, but there was never, ever wine at the table. You know, mom now has developed a great White Zinn habit, but always an open mag of Behringer White Zinn in the fridge. It's incredible. Gotta have those gateway wines, right? Yeah, exactly. But no, we didn't, I never saw wine at the table or we never drank it when we went out to dinner or, I mean, maybe on Thanksgiving, one of the uncles would bring it over, but no, there was, it was not a wine background at all. What was the entree? I mean, what was the, what was kind of the move at the moment? You know, when I was in college, I was in Cincinnati, Ohio, and uh, I was working at a like higher end steakhouse there. You know, I kind of, as a, as a waiter, I kind of knew that like learning about wines would make me more money because sure. I can remember just thinking like, 97 cake bread was as good as it could possibly get because I had no context for the world of wine. And uh, I can remember a staff training that this overambitious uh, sales rep did for us. Whereas like I tasted like champagne, my first Chateau Neuf. He pulled out Riesling at a steakhouse for some reason. Like it was just this lineup that I was like, I realized that there was a lot more to wine and it wasn't just like who uses the most ML in their shard. And that means it's the most better. You know what I mean? Uh, so the next day I went out and bought what probably everybody buys is their first wine book, Kevin's Raley's. And, uh, you know, I've been broke and reading and trying wines ever since then. So you're working at a steakhouse. And then what was the, the next move in your restaurant career? After that, I moved to Charlotte. Mostly, not for really any good reason. I, uh, I was done with college. I dropped out. I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew that I loved wine and I loved restaurants. And you were uh, probably making good money in restaurants at that time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would assume way more money than I'm making now. Right. No, but that I was too. Yes, yeah, like late 90s before yeah, September yeah. 11th, like cleaning up. Yeah, like, no doubt. Ex- you're like, dude, I'm making more money than my parents. Like pharmaceuticals didn't have all the rules that they had now. Hundred percent. It was the wild west when it came to pharmaceutical steakhouses showing off. So, yeah, yeah, the money was pretty great. So I was enjoying that aspect of it too. So I moved to Charlotte and met some people that were opening a restaurant. Um, and just assumed that I would be there for like six months. I had some other friends that were moving from Ohio there. And so, you know, just to kind of, oh, this would be cool. Let me open a restaurant with these guys. They seem to know what they're doing. They're pretty bright. Uh, and then, I mean, six, seven years later, uh, I'd opened up four restaurants for them and a wine bar concept. And it wasn't until, so Charlotte was a lot longer than I anticipated it. What was the wine programs like? Uh, not great. Uh, but I got to oversee the wine programs and open up restaurants. And, you know, really, I was a manager who oversaw the wine program because I had the most wine knowledge. It's not as if we valued the wine program so much that. Um, so, I mean, Charlotte is not New York when it comes to a wine market. So there was, you know, it was buying 
Malbec and Shiraz and, you know, people pleasers and that kind of stuff. But, you know, there was no, like, you never see Graveno out in Charlotte or you never like, those are just rumors that like Ryas exists. Like you just read about it in books that it's supposed to be amazing. And you're like, and you try to find it and maybe you get to taste it every so often. But so, but what I really learned that I think uh, a lot of young Psalms don't get to is, I mean, I had to manage people and schedules and labor and P&L, not just for the wine program, but for the restaurants and open up restaurants and do all that. So, I mean, when I get into a new job, you know, one of the things that bosses immediately like about me is that I understand the numbers because, you know, there's so many, same thing with chefs too. There's so many chefs that get promoted to executive sue. And it's like, so what's the formula for cost again? And you're like, oh, yikes. What were some of the learning curves for you? Some of the, I mean, the learning curves for me were really, you know, trying to do something progressive in a company that, you know, with the wine program in a company that it, it just wasn't, it was a great restaurant group. It just wasn't, the concept wasn't to be progressive. The concept was to kind of throw fastballs, not curves, not educate. So, and the learning curve for me was like that classic Psalm story where you're just banging your head against the wall because you're trying to do something cool, but it's, you're just in the wrong concept. It's not that they're wrong or you're wrong. You're just with the wrong people. So, I mean, I, uh, after banging my head for a while, you know, it was just like, oh, this was great and I learned a lot, but it's time to move on. Probably a little bit later, you know, looking back in hindsight, probably a little bit later than I should have. But it was also, that was a different time. Like there weren't so many articles about sommeliers and like it wasn't, didn't seem like a genuine career in a way. It seemed like, oh, this is the one I've got, but I don't know if there's so many other options. You know what I mean? True. Yeah. You have no idea what's out there. Um, I mean, you kind you knew obviously it would be better in San Francisco or New York, but you didn't really, there's like, you have no idea how to get in or like what to do or like who to meet. And you don't really meet many people hanging out in Charlotte. Like then right, like people kind of just like coming through. Hey, so, you know, there's this guy in San Francisco doing some pretty great stuff. Like, let me connect you via email and maybe have something like. Right. And you're I, not following him on Delectable or, or yeah, Instagram. Exactly. There's none of that. So Exactly. Yeah, that wasn't around yet. So, you know, you just kind of figure it out as you go. But I knew that, you know, there had to be more things that I could do because somebody's buying all that burgundy <laughs> and selling it and drinking it. It just wasn't happening where I was. I remember like books would come out like the new France and stuff. And I would read those books and be like, Oh, I've never heard of that producer. And yet this guy says it's like the best guy in that appellation. I wonder why we don't have it or why this market doesn't have it. Exactly. How have I never seen that? That's crazy. You know, the other thing is that you read producers that are supposed to be that are, you know, amongst the best in that area too. Right. And it's and then you when you finally get to a place where you get to drink those wines, you're like, "What are they talking about? These wines are terrible." Uh, so you don't even get to like, uh, but you don't know enough at that time because oh, you to appreciate the wine that you're yeah, tasting. Yeah, so you haven't tasted Raveno yet, right? So when somebody brings you this hot new Chablis producer that is actually not as good as people say, um, you don't even know that you're just like, "Oh, everybody says this is great, so right. this must be what really good Chablis tastes like." And then. You know, five years later, you're like, man, I can't believe I ever didn't have the the courage to be like, yeah, these aren't very good. Yeah, I'm tasting a lot of oak. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I don't think we need to name specific producers, <laughs> but. So what was the next move? You get out of Charlotte and what happens? You know, it, it's funny. I was like, I sent my resume to a lot of people because I knew it was time to get out. But, you know, even though I was so naive. So I thought that I knew a lot about wine. Right. I, like, it's I, easy to do. You didn't I, know what you didn't know. Yeah, exactly. 
you know, reach out to fill in the blank of like a wine centric, like Mina group and on and on. It was like, yeah, um, you know, I think we have something for you in Atlantic City. And I was like, oh, man, Stephanie is not moving to Atlantic Sorry, you're, you're Atlantic married, City people. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So uh, the next step was a resort in West Virginia called the Greenbrier, which was an amazing job. Tried really hard with the wine program. It was definitely like next level, like definitely discovered wines that I didn't know. Got to taste a lot of stuff and was, you know, a pretty unique place. And the wine director there at the time was Heath Porter, who had... I mean, you know, loves Burgundy and re- just like the rest of us, but definitely his favorite is Italian. So getting to work with him really opened up my eyes to Italian. Because, you know, I talked about how there's not much French stuff going to some of the bee markets in the South, but there's the Italian you get to see. Like I can remember literally telling myself, I don't understand it. Italian wines are terrible. And now looking back at what they were bringing me, it was just, I was right. The Italian wines they show to you are terrible. You're like, this gold label wine, terrible. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And that's like the one that they show you. Like, oh, you're looking for a Chianti. Well, this is the only one you need. This is the, yeah, this is the one. Call it a day. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Fill in the blank for the number of cases and we'll call it an afternoon. Exactly. I'll I'll make this real easy trip. This is the only Chianti (laughs) you need. So that really opened up my eyes. And that's where like the love of Italian wine came from, was from Heath. And that was like uh, DeGrazia days, like rocking modern Barolo, or what was the deal? Uh, there was a little bit of modern Barolo, yeah. But, you know, it was also, there was uh, also some like of the old Chatterton stuff that somehow found its way there. It was um, weird how sometimes Chatterton would get into markets you'd never expect. You know? Yeah, exactly. But I mean, when Heath got to West Virginia, you know, there were some great wine directors there, but, you know, him trying to get the ones that he loved was reaching out to the importers and they're like, oh, can you recommend a distributor in West Virginia? Because we're not there and we're only going to sell to you. Like, I'm not going to send a sales rep there. So it so was more like DI, more like I'm interested in this. Can you bring it in for me? That kind of thing. Yeah, a lot of stuff like that. Uh, I remember Domain Select had a big presence in our wine program as well. And that could have been just because that was one of the first people Heath reached out to or whatever. But no, I remember they were in Massachusetts too. So that's, they probably did more outreach. Because it was the same. There wasn't so many Italian wines, but Domain Select was there. Like, sure. Yeah, back, yeah. You know. Yeah, I can. we were pouring, like at the steakhouse in the resort, Movia Savignon by the glass. You wouldn't think that that would be like the That move, would be the one, yeah. But, you know, it worked. And there was definitely a little bit of a thirst for something different. Higher acid whites were kind of coming up, whether it be Gruner or some of those Italian wines, you know, less well-known. Yeah, I mean? yeah, like, absolutely. I mean, I think we we had much more luck with Italian reds than Italian whites, um, Still today, I'm sure. Of know. course, yeah. I yeah. mean, especially for the price point. I spent yeah. most of my time at uh, the steakhouse and resort too, so I'm for obvious reasons. That was right. <laughs> what do I have with my shrimp cocktail? Oh, maybe I'll get a glass of wine before this $200 bottle of red. Yeah, like, exactly. That kind of thing. Yeah. Well, it was like, what should I have with the oysters? And then you would like, oh, this is the champagne we're doing by the glass right now. And they're like, no, no, I meant what red wine? Right, I right, have? right. Of course, my mistake. Let's move right to the Brunello. <laughs> But what was the Greenbrier like? I mean, what was it as a place? What was it like? Pretty incredible. I mean, there was a lot of crazy stuff going on there at the time. They were changing concepts and opening up new stuff. There was a new owner who was a local guy who seemed, I mean, he kind of seemed like a Steinbrenner of like the hotels. Like he was a local guy, wanted Greenbrier to be great and didn't care like how much velocity he had to take to make that happen. So, I mean. But it was a busy place. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was definitely seasonal. It's not like. In February, in the mountains of West Virginia, we were killing it because it wasn't a ski resort. It was more of a golf, old school, like been around for hundreds of years. 
golf resort where the wealthy from like DC went and stuff like that. So, I mean, in season, it was crazy busy, like 700 rooms all booked. Um, and it wasn't inexpensive. So it was a great clientele to get to work with too. But off season, that probably meant you could hit the books a little bit, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, a little bit. It meant that I, um, she wasn't my wife at the time, but Stephanie also stayed in Charlotte. So it meant I could drive to Charlotte a little more often (laughs) and get to see (laughs) See her deal. But yeah, there was a, a coffee shop in town that I definitely spent a lot of time studying at uh, during the off season. On season, forget it. It was seven days a week, and but I mean, they started hosting a PGA tournament while I was there, and they um, hosted a, a Vander Holyfield the boxing match like at the resort well, you while still I was had there. The year or? No, no, that was way post year. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I can just remember I, I can't remember the name of the guy he fought, but like trying to get into the main dining without a dinner jacket, and you're like. Well, we have these jackets over here, and no way those fit you. So this is going to go really well. Uh, <laughs> but isn't that the place with like the presidential bunker or something? Yeah, like that? exactly. There's a a bunker below where I can't I can't remember where it's built, like in the 40s or so, and that's where they're going to send the Senate, like in if nuclear war happened to it. I, I don't know the whole story, but like Washington Post leaked it in '92, which was probably great for the Green Bar because now they give tours of it, and it's one of the things they're known for. But it kind of shows you like how much history is there and like how cool of a spot. I think it's something 20 some, maybe 30 presidents have stayed there over the course of time. Basically, your wine cellar is like a presidential bunker. Is that, is that I, so? It turns out it's much more lucrative to use it to give tours of <laughs> than to store wine. Yeah, unfortunately. From the Greenbrier, what happens? What's, what's the next on the. So I, I was a year there. And I'd say if that job was in like san francisco or new york like i probably would have stayed there for decades because it was a lot of fun but um i also kind of realized that um you know when i was working in charlotte if i could go back like what i probably would have done is traveled europe done some internships at wineries and things like that but so i'd never worked production um and how old are you at that point so i was nearing 30 i was probably like 28 so i wanted to move to california so i could work production you know via buying all that california wine and in uh, Charlotte and, and uh, West Virginia, I had some relationships out there. So I went and worked at Harvest at Sainsbury, brought uh, my wife with me and just assumed like, well, I'm going to work Harvest th- for three months and I bet you I'll be able to find a SOM gig at the time because I was naive and I had no idea. Like when you move to a new spot, especially from across the country and nobody knows who you are, it's really hard to get a SOM job. So pretty naive, but you know, in the way that things sometimes just work out, the apartment that we found in Napa, which we got sight unseen uh, while before we moved there, a manager at Red happened to live in the same building. And so I became friends with him. They needed a sommelier. And so, like, I'm sure they were probably better candidates, but just through, you know, people liking you and you being just a <laughs> laid back guy that people tend to get along with, like... I got a job that maybe I wouldn't have if it wasn't for that random connection of, of being in the same apartment building as Paul Stroud, you know? You're like, I'm glad I brought that mail over for you, bro. Like, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> glad we had that Tupperware party. <laughs> do you mean to walk your dog? or what? <laughs> what can I do, man? And they have Red and Redwood, right? Exactly, yeah. So I worked at Red for a bit and then opened up Redwood. was the opening song there. And then a little while after the opening, went back to Red. But th- So that's where, you know, really I got to work with some psalms that like mentored you like getting to work with willie Shear was incredible so that's like post Ariel days or yeah exactly so when he he left vegas and moved to napa uh and took over as one director at red 
I only hear like really good things about it from other people who've been on a show. They usually say nice things. Yeah, he's pretty. I mean, he's been around for a while. He's still working the floor. He's not one of which is, and this is rare in California, not as much here, but like has no desire to do things. He's a sommelier, which means I work the floor and I love it. And so, I mean, just getting to taste with him and get his perspective on wines, you kind of learn like what things you're supposed to taste like and what's actually faulted. And, you know, what I talked about before where you don't know, like everybody just says that these wines are amazing and nobody ever writes it really flawed, but (laughs) people who like flawed wines will be totally into these. Uh, like you can hear, from, like, no, so this is what happened with this wine. Like, uh, you can like it if you want, but it's not really my thing. And I'll, he's encyclopedia of vintage knowledge. I mean, to the point where we were joking about, I can remember like uh, mid-70s Oregon, like somebody had brought one in. He was like, and he was rattling off like 74 to 78, like what those were like when they were young and what they're like now. And we're just like, who knows that? Like, that's insane. And he was a nice guy. Yeah, very, very, very. But, Definitely somebody I stay in touch with. I can still reach out with questions or mostly just sarcastic texts making fun of, you know, his wine or one of our friends or something like that. But Redwood had, I visited a while back, it had a fair amount of Italian wine. Was that a thing at the time? Yeah. uh, When we opened it, it was probably half Italian and half Napa, which, you know, that half Italian part, people take for granted that, oh, there's a great wine culture in Napa, that people are really into drinking something from outside of the neighborhood. And that's not true at all. <laughs> there was a, definitely a lot of like, why Why is it not just, there's a lot of calatels being grown out here. Why? Uh, so that was a little bit rough at first. But again, I got to get more perspective. And that was like a pretty... the locals saw that they felt you weren't always supporting them 100% is what you're trying to say. Yeah, like, exactly. Like, all of this should be ours. Exactly, yeah. yeah. You think you're doing the right thing because like two-thirds of the buy the glasses people within a square mile or something and it's like yeah it's 66 percent is great you know what's better a hundred percent you know i sell wine and so do these other 10 guys yeah you all come into your restaurant that kind of thing yeah very much so um but you know it was a pretty inexpensive list so it also opened my eyes to not just blue chip italian stuff but like all the really like the pigatos and the ruques and the pilavergas and all that cool stuff that maybe you don't even read about in books unless you're like way deep into some geeky Italian books. Nobody really writes about those, but that's some pretty cool stuff to serve at a pizza joint. So, I mean, that was a great experience too, to get to taste with Willie, watch him put together that list and really get like exposed to a lot more of Italy than just Barolo, Super Tuscans, Brunello. How long were you with uh, Reddington? Probably about a year. It was probably, yeah, literally like probably just short of a year between the two places. And what was your next? Uh, what was your next thinking? Uh, so I just I wanted to work some more production. Um, I'd done another harvest where I volunteered at Gargiulo, so I got to see some high end cab. And oh, what and was how, that like? Um, it was really interesting because you know Saintsbury's a little bit more eclectic, and you know they've been around forever. So you know they're one of the the OG like Carneros people. So like you can't throw surprises at them. They know what they're doing. They have a formula. Gargiulo is like that you know two different sorting tables picking out jacks like super pristine and like really high-end you know immaculately made wine so it was pretty interesting to see that aspect of winemaking too because we mostly visit and read about you know people making crazy stuff out of garages or their basement in burgundy and so to see like the other side of it up close and be into it was pretty neat but i wanted to work somewhere that was maybe a little bit more like mom and pop and so i reached out to greg harrington uh, and went and worked to harvest in Walla Walla, Washington. I mean, that was definitely the most educational winemaking experience for me. How so? 
because there's no formula at all. You know, when grapes come in, like he tastes the stems and calls out how much whole cluster we're going to do on that. He's always in the vineyards. Like there's not, he's not, there's no adding acid. There's no adding sugar. There's none of that stuff. And so you like, you literally get to see more of the vintage variation and, uh, you know, how to battle that with winemaking techniques versus like what you're putting into the wines. But also he's so accessible in that he like, since he was always there and as assistant winemaker, Brandon was always there working that you can ask them questions like, Oh, what would happen if you did this? Or, Hey, doesn't so-and-so do this? You know, and they're every vintage I've gone back the past two years and they do something different every year. They're trying something new that Greg saw when he was visiting, you know, like Alamon, or they're trying something new with the temperature. This year they just got concrete to ferment in. So it's, they're always evolving and just trying to make something better versus like trying to make something that tastes the same year after year with hopefully a higher score. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So via that process, I probably some different grape varieties too, right? Like then, Hey, it's just Chardonnay Cab and Merlot. Like it's not really his thing, right? No, I mean, he makes that some Bordeaux grapes, but the first year I, when I was there, it was the first year he messed around with white and that was just a little bit of Vigne. But like when he makes Rosé, like he's ma- he's not, it's not like Sagne, like byproduct. Well, we might as- like, he's trying to make the best Rosé that he possibly can. Uh, but it was cool to work with like Syrah and Tempranillo and seeing him visit vineyards to kind of decide what he's going to do and buy. And when I was there, he messed around with San Gervaisa. I don't think he ever bottled it, but to see him like, Chachi is like his idea of what Brunello is. So to see him like try to make Chachi from like uh, Washington. Washington yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's a pretty ballsy move. You know what I mean? But instead of just like, hey, San Gervaisio will sell well. Let's let's just get something in bottle. Um, like he was going after it, you know? Right. He had icons that he was kind of moving towards. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, sometimes you fail just when you're trying that big. But at the end of the day, like if I in terms of like being able to make wine when I left working a harvest, like that was the one where I actually learned like how to make wine and what to do and could actually probably do it after working that. Did that help segue you into a new sommelier role or what happened? Yeah. So working harvest there pretty much bought me three months to find a job. And, you know, I was going to go back to California, but my wife was still living in Napa and something opened up at RN 74 while I was in Walla Walla. So the timing worked out perfect that I could come back and started RN and get to work with those guys and get a little bit deeper into Burgundy. So that's a big place. I mean, that's nice that that came together. What was that like? It was great. It was so much fun. I learned so much, got to work with some great people, got to taste unbelievable wines. Such a big step in the evolution too. I don't know if anybody ever tells people anymore that like, so if you want to be a really smart sommelier, like you can study all you want and read about these producers, but if you're not working at a place, where you get to taste those wines all the time, then you're really, really missing out. And that's what that place was. Like, I can, you know, obviously I knew about Ravino by the time I got there and it tasted it quite a bit. And, but I mean, by the time, like, work six months at RN and like when you get blinded on Ravino, you'll be like, this is definitely 08 Ravino, but. <laughs> so you're not just like, I think I'm in Chablis. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, I can remember starting there and like tasting, getting blind and, and being like, oh, I think it's Merceau. And it was like a, Pulini, like from like Le Fleve or something. I'm like, oh, that was really close. I'm pretty good, huh, guys? Yeah, and then like six months Burgundy. later, six months later, you're like, no, this is okay. So I know this is Rouleau. The only question is, is, is this Michevaux? I think it is. I'm going to call it. Because <laughs> Rogers is a really good taster. Incredible. Um, you know, you think 
Like people talk about Raj so much that you're just like, so much of this has to be fluff. Like just because he's a good dude, like I'm sure people over exaggerate, but he literally is as good a taster as people say he is. I mean, talk about calling producer and vineyards like on the regular. It's it's pretty incredible to watch. So and not only that, but I mean, Railsback was still there. Chad Ziegler's an incredible taster. And there were some other great tasters there as well. So I mean, that's where you really get to learn to taste like you know, not like court of psalms, court of master psalms method where it's like deductive calling everything out, but like spending 30 seconds with him being like, yeah, this is Dovey. One of the things I realized about Raj is after a while watching him do his thing is that he seems to be looking at soil type first and then working back from there. Yeah, kind of working backwards on that. Yeah, I feel like he says, okay, this is limestone. So what's on limestone and where's limestone? And then he kind of takes it that way or granite or sand. So it's not really like the MS boxes because he doesn't go, the color is medium dark. Because when you're dealing with classic Appalachians of Europe, you can kind of go from soil type back if you have enough familiarity and it kind of narrows you in. You know what I mean? Sure, yeah, completely. The other thing that I think people miss out on is that to me, it's, you know, everybody focuses on like calling village in Burgundy. To me, it's actually almost easier to recognize producer. Like when you can figure out like, it's easier to figure out what Dongeville tastes like than it is to figure out what Volnay tastes like because there's way more differences in Volnay producers than there are in wines, you know, mm-hmm. uh, at least is my feeling. So I think when you get to taste those producers and get intimate with the producers, it's much easier to get to the the village because when you know the producer, it's obviously easier to get to the village. And a lot of the producers are coming by RN, I feel like, when they're in the States. So you're probably meeting dudes and... Yeah, yeah. So you get you get to literally ask questions and you have access and you get to meet everybody. So, I mean, that's a huge thing to get to taste those wines all the time, to get to meet the guys so you can pepper them with questions because there's only so much that you can do on Google, you know, mm-hmm. especially when it comes to France. Like you can find out anything you want about California vineyards, but French vineyards, it's still you have to meet the guys who farm it and you have to ask questions uh, about the history or what they're doing different when they started doing that when so-and-so started making the wines and all those things that you, they don't have it on their website. It's not on the website. Yeah. And what was San Francisco like as a city? I loved it. I had a great time. I mean, I'm a city guy, but really great community. Like I made friends in a minute. When I was still in Napa, uh, I was lucky enough to get in some pretty great tasting groups. Like there was one still going on at the fifth floor. Like there's been a lot of legendary Psalms who were in tasting groups at the fifth floor. There was still one going on. And uh, we had a great one at Bourbon Steak. Uh, in the St. Francis with some of the best Psalms out in California. So um, it was really easy to make friends. I got really lucky that way. And so the other thing about San Francisco versus New York is that you're off the floor at like 10, 30, 11. Like your nine o'clock reservations may or may not show up. Where in like New York, like your 10, 30 reservations are showing up. So you're off the floor late. But in San Francisco, you know, we could be done and meeting at NOPA or, or, you know, meeting at at Rye at like 11.30 because everybody's done for the night, which is vastly different than meeting at 2.30. I remember being at the Slanted Door at 9.30 and then 9.45, 10 o'clock came around and it was complete Andromeda strain. Nobody was there. Yeah. Like empty village. Even like when I left, I had to find my own coat in the coat check like <laughs> because no one was there anymore. Yeah, like, yeah. Turn out the lights. And when I, we left was probably... 10 10 on you know like and that's a place that's busy yeah no kidding you're there at seven and there's 350 people there dining 
and nobody's taking those nine o'clock reservations, even though that's the only thing available. So then I wondered, like, why is that? You know, because every place you go that's not uh, NOPA is like that. I found in San Francisco. I'm pretty much I'm like, unless you go to a neighborhood that's catered towards late night, it's usually done by ten. So it took me a long time. I was like, why is that the case? Because I'm not used to this, and this is odd. And then I realized that all the money works on New York time. You know, like all the money needs to be up at the time New York is up, which means it has to be up early. Sure, yeah, yeah. You know, three hours difference. So, you know. Well, there's that. Then when I was there, there was also, I don't know why they were not late, but there was also the kids in hoodies that were <laughs> working in tech that were also out spending money. But for whatever, whatever reason, they were at cocktail bars at 1130 instead of being at like Slanted Door or RN or whatever. It's funny with San Francisco because you can't tell who's the young kid in tech and who's the young kid just like cutting high school. Yeah, living it, in his it, mom's basement. Yeah, you are like because you guys look the same. Because in New York, I feel like you don't see just kids wandering around. Like they they're usually like at their internship, working eighty hours a week. They're not just wandering the streets like looking for trouble. You know yeah. what I mean? But like you actually actively encounter that in many neighborhoods in San Francisco. It's like, well, don't you guys have some place to be like making rent money? You know what I mean? Like just scraping by just to pay rent. Oh no? Oh, because you live in San Francisco. That's why. Yeah, right. Meanwhile they probably just uh had a startup that just went IPO and <laughs> Right. And he's like <laughs> they're laughing at us. Yeah, Krug eighty nine's good, but I prefer the eighty eight. You know, that kind of thing. I've definitely met some dudes like that in San Francisco. So, Chadlack, what's he like? What's the inside story on the Chad Ziegler, huh? Huh? <laughs> There's a lot of inside stories on Chad Ziegler. Incredible to work with. His knowledge of vineyards is, especially for somebody who's like only 12 years old, is like wild. Uh, he did the smart, I mean, he was working that venturenship at uh, the laundry when he was like 21. And like, you know, he did the right things. He he uh, worked a harvest at Lafleve and Pretty calculated, really smart. So his knowledge of Burgundy vineyards especially, but the Northern Rhone is outrageously good. Great taster. You can always ask him questions, always learn. Great taster. Like blinders, like incredible. Like never missed one. But he also could hit things that weren't classic. You could give him California stuff or, uh, and he would still get it right. Like he wasn't only about Burgundy. A lot of fun too. (laughs) <laughs> that's the impression i've gotten from from meeting him so meeting a group you, you're working with them and then what's next you know i was in a really good spot i really enjoyed working there I was working with great people i had always thought that you know i'm gonna want to live in new york someday i've always told my wife that you know hopefully we get like six years on this planet if we don't spend a couple of them living in manhattan that would be a pretty giant waste so you know i was in a good spot so if something opened up where they wanted me and you know, I wanted to work there, then, you know, I would take it. I assumed that I would have been at RN for a couple of years, but it turned out I was there for a little, I think a little bit less than a year when the gig at Myelino opened up and I talked to, to Regan about it. And I thought it was a great opportunity. I thought it would be a lot of fun. How I did you was, meet John? You know, that's a good, I'm not sure how I met John. I think just via like court of master sommelier stuff, uh, somewhere I met him. I had actually talked to him about a job earlier when I was in Walla Walla, but there wasn't really anything. So when that uh, Mylino thing, he put an ad, I reached out like we just talked immediately. And, you know, I always, like I think a lot of people in restaurants, I, I read Danny's book and, you know, kind of eyed his success and, you know, more so his philosophies. Because if you work at enough restaurants, you're going to work for some chefs or owners that are not very nice. So like there's this philosophy out there, like an owner who 
whose core belief is like taking great care of not only his guests, but his employees. Like that sounds incredible. That's where I want to work. And so reached out to John. We interviewed a couple of times. I came out here, met with, you know, the team and I was New York bound. When did you arrive? Uh, June of last year, 2013. So I've been here just about a year and a half. And it seems like a lot of changes on the list. Like when I looked at it back in the day and when I look at it now, it seems like a lot of difference. Yeah, I mean, one of the great things about that group is, you know, even John, it's not like they tell you what to do. Like they, you get, you get a little bit of a long leash, you know, and it grows over time if you're doing the right things. But, you know, you can put your imprint on the program and do what you think is best. And if it works out, then you get rewarded. And if it doesn't, then, you know, they kind of work with you to make it better. But so far, it's been great. You know, the, the list that I took over was so much fun and so cool. A lot of eclectic stuff and stuff you don't see and um, some vintage depth on some, you know, things like Foradori, Tarotigos and, and weird stuff like that. So it was a lot of fun to take over. You know, I think when we looked at it, my thought was that there was a lot of room to grow with the classics. And, I'm, you know, when it comes down to it, I love eclectic wines as much as anybody else. But, you know, I, I love champagne. <laughs> I love Barolo, you know, I love, so I'm probably more, a little bit more of a classic lover than a lot of Psalms, but I thought that's where there was room to grow. And I had no idea in New York how much access you have to vintage grape producers and old vintages. I would have assumed that it would take me five years to get the list to where it is now in terms of vintage depth and grape producers and not just grape producers, but kind of the quote unquote B producers from, you know, the great vintages and to get those on the list uh, at prices that are affordable even for sommeliers. When did it start to dawn on you that New York was a little different? A couple months in. You know, I knew that, you know, everybody talks about New York and how crazy and how big. And and so you're like, yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, and so my first couple of months, I mean, I got to work like three days after getting here. So I didn't really like soak in New York <laughs> before I got to work. So I just got to work. And uh, I had no idea like how big it was at the time or how unique. I mean, you think there's probably like that small handful of Psalms that you know about because, you know, they're either big on Instagram or, you know, like they've done some pretty great things or, you know, whatever. So, but it turns out there's like these really smart Psalms all over that you have no idea about because they're at some 40 seat restaurant in a part of Brooklyn that you didn't even know existed. And they're doing incredible things with their lists and they're all over. Like it's crazy how many different spots you can go to and there's just amazing stuff being done. It's pretty humbling that you'll never be the smartest. You might be able to be the smartest in one small category, but you know, you could think you're a giant sherry geek or something. Uh, but then you find out that there's a spot <laughs> uh, for some reason, like East village that just has like this incredible sherry collection uh, and has wines that you didn't even know existed. And it's really humbling like that way. So I found, I, I think after a couple months when I started to like look at other people's lists and actually get out on the town that I realized that, oh, New York's even more different than I thought. It seems like in terms of Italian wine, the market at the distributor level is pretty fragmented. It seems like you could be dealing with a lot of different distributors to get three Etna Rosso might be three distributors. You know, I would say that's usually the case. I think there's a lot of history, I think, to that, that I can't really speak to because it's I've been here for a year and a half and I think it's before my time. But from when I hear, um, you know, stories from the guys who've been buying for a while about like 
who used to carry these wines and you know what went on with them and stuff like that that it sounds like there's some pretty unique stories about italian wine specifically in new york and who sells them but i think you know italian wine you have to really work to find all those wines because there are so many there's so many distributors you only want to buy two wines from but you really want to have those two wines on your list otherwise your ruke section isn't complete <laughs> So, I mean, you have to work really hard at that. You have to work really hard at, at the auctions. You have to work really hard at the secondary sources. And so, you know, it's a grind if you want to have a unique, different, but really great Italian list. Someone were coming in and you were like, hey, you're going to work at an Italian restaurant? Let me tell you a few things. Yeah, one is, I mean, I think at the end of the day, it's just successful. It's being somebody that people want to work with. So just being cool, being nice. Treating people well. You can't always give... So how do you do it, though? <laughs> <laughs> well, I have... Uh, I have my SOM team deal with that. <laughs> right, so, right. So they we don't have know. people for that. Yeah, yeah exactly. I mean, you, you always want to outsource the things you're not good at. So being nice, obviously, I have, <laughs> I have Katie and Erica and Paula take care. You know, I think that the advice I would give is to just kind of find your niche. Like, decide what you want to be really good at and be the best you can at that. Because you with Italy, you can't be the best Southern Italian and have the best Barolo and have because somebody else is already cornering that. So just kind of find your niche and do it. But I would also say trust your palate too, because you're going to find a lot of uh, opinions on Italy. Like, oh, you don't carry this one; this one's the best. But like, just whatever you think is right, that's what I would go with. You know, the fun thing about Italy to me, especially coming with from a program that sold a lot of Burgundy with age, is. Old Barolo is delicious and it's affordable for now. I would even, this will be controversial, but I would say, in my opinion, maybe like the best Barolo maybe isn't as good as like, you know, Richborg at the, you know, in terms of the highest highs. But those B producers from like, I would much rather drink like one of the outs, like the 10th best producer from Barolo with 40 years of age than I would the 10th best Burgundy producer with 40 years of age. And so that is so fun to work with. So, I mean, it's affordable stuff. So explore it and and have fun with it. And what have you been excited to find in terms of older vintages or producers from, say, Piemonte? So I've been shocked by, I mean, it comes and goes, unfortunately, but like the old uh, Caremas from Ferrando have been, like when I can find them are, for the most part, pretty incredible. Uh, unfortunately, um, like, I'll, you know, you'll find three bottles of like the 89 and then, like, you take a day off and you're like, oh, where are those three bottles? And Sam's like, oh, we sold those. Those were delicious. <laughs> this one table loved it. They and got then, all three. Yeah. So, I mean, the good news and the bad news is that we have so much success with them that I'm always, it's a grind trying to keep them in stock and find more, which is not an easy thing to do. But, you know, the obviously, like, the old Quinternos and the old Mascarellas and stuff are, for the most part, going to be pretty delicious. But, you know, Franco Fiorina and Akamaso and... Like some of the producers that I, literally, to be honest with you, I'd not, I didn't even know existed when I took over this Italian program for better I, or worse. I think both of those are pretty under the radar. Yeah. And they, the 78s from both of those producers are great. 78 Akamaso is killer. The Rochetta, awesome. Yeah, yeah. Those wines are incredible. And they, you know, again, a producer nobody's ever heard of. I bet you they're on my list for under 200. If they're not, then it's really close. And so, I mean, find me that value like in another. In another uh, wine region. Right. It used to be there with the Rhone. Maybe not with quite as much age, but it used to be able to rock the old, you know, 15-year-old clop for, you know, 
115 or whatever but that's yeah, those, days, those are days are gone long gone but i'm sure one day we'll look back and be like dude remember when you used to be able to crack the 67 barolo for you know 250 yeah, or whatever those, i don't think those days are far away from when we're laughing about what we were paying for these ones in 2014 so we might as well enjoy it while we can because what do you think about nebbiolo as a grape and piemonte as a place i mean if you're coming up with descriptors for understanding these subjects what would you say it's my very favorite red wine region I've, for whatever reason, I've always, because it's, you know, it has so many of the great traits of Burgundy, but, you know, in, in the best cases, I think even more aromatics, but I think you can do so much food-wise with it because of that structure, because of even more acid than most red Berg, obviously more tannin, and the different levels of tannin as it ages is so much fun to work with, with, you know, different fattiness levels of food, or sometimes not even fat, but, you know, uh, how much mushrooms you can work with, they're just like savory, earthy, obviously truffly uh ingredients so in terms of like working with italian food it's so much fun to work with do you think there's regions inside of italy that have yet to kind of bubble up to the top of the the pack like piemonte has but that someone might look to and be like wow pretty exciting you know that's a good question i obviously i mean i think you would agree that etna's kind of the rage uh right now but i mean i think we would be talking about regions that age yeah, very I well have a as well. Big and question I, mark on Etna on aging. I was going to say the same thing. So, I mean, I think that's kind of up in the air because I think so much has changed winemaking right. uh, wise in Etna that, you know, even when you're tasting like early 2000s right now and you talk to that same producer, they've changed so much about what they're making that I don't know if we, I mean, I don't, I don't know enough about that region to say. I would say, you know, I think Alianico, both from like Campania, I think uh, Volturi is probably. Uh, a region that you could make some pretty great stuff. There's just not many people doing it. But dollar-wise, those wines are dirt cheap. And I think there's huge potential there to make some pretty great stuff. For white wines, I think Friuli is just head and shoulders above, you know, even what they're doing in Campania. I don't know about the ageability, but the white wines from Etna, I actually would rather drink a white wine from Etna than I would red in many cases. I think Terranari's white is delicious. I think what Salvo Fodi does is delicious. Marco de Bartoli, I think that Grillo is uh, shockingly awesome. good. Yeah, Sabibo too. You're like, oh, this is a Muscat with some mineral character? Yeah, crazy. No and, and crazy amount of acid as well. Yeah, that wine's pretty eye-opening as well. You're like, this is the best Muscat I've ever had. <laughs> yeah. So this is the first situation, as far as I can understand, where you kind of hired your own team as a sommelier, not as a manager. So what was that like for you? Um. You know, again, it speaks to what Union Square, where they never ever say like, eh, I don't know. We've been, we don't have psalms at the restaurants other than the modern and we're doing okay. So why don't you just do it on your own? Like present the idea to have psalms, tell them what you think, what kind of impact it'll make on service and sales. And they're open to it, you know, which is amazing. It was a huge advantage when I was trying to hire psalms that uh, we have the reach that USHC does. Because if it was, you know, just a Roman style trattoria owned by some dude named Jeff Kellogg probably wouldn't have been able to get the talent that I did, but it's also like, I think lended credibility to the team, to the wine program with the talent that we got, um, you know, getting Eric O'Neill from Frasca and getting Kitty Morton from the nomad and Paula Rester from Congress. I mean, that's really solid Psalm team for the first three hires. So it's been a great experience. And they've all lent kind of their unique things to the program and they're all awesome. So it's just made us such a better restaurant at the same time. And I know it's changed 
it certainly helped the other U.S. Sushi restaurants as well in terms of like, oh, maybe Sams are a good idea. And I think you can see, I mean, the job that Regan's done in bringing in Michael Engelman to the modern and Michael Scafidi and the job that Mia does over at North and Grill and then getting Jack Mason to open up Marta. So, I mean, I think what John's done in terms of building the wine program as a company has been incredible. Why do you think Italian is so popular in New York? I mean, what is it about Italian? It seems like it's become kind of de facto dining in a lot of ways. For whatever reason, there's a real accessibility to Italian food that just feels like every day, you know, whether it's pizza or the pasta that we do or, you know, all the salumi and cheeses. And there's just something like so easy and casual and everyday about it. And, you know, from a wine director perspective, there's something about Italian food as well where it just seems like obviously you would have wine with it. Like, oh, we're about to order pasta. Like, (laughs) even though it's like one's a carbonara, one's red sauce and uh, there's still, like, obviously, we're going to have like a bottle of Barbera with this. That would be barbaric if we didn't, you know? <laughs> so there's just something I think so easy and every day and not, it just seems like something you can do anytime without like much planning or stuffiness. So a little bit over a year in New York, big changes on the program in terms of hiring and then what's on the page at Myelino for the wine program. What's going to happen in the next year for Jeff Kellogg? I think. One of my goals in 2015 is to actually uh, study for the EMS so I could sit in 2016 because I've put that off for the past two years now just because I've been grinding so much at work. I think that in terms of that program, you'll see it continue to grow in a guest-friendly way. Uh, every time I make a purchase, I always think, you know, my goal is to make it the place that I would want to, if I was thinking, where do I want to drink Italian wine? Uh, I want that place to be my Alino. So, I think it'll keep growing in terms of things that other people don't have at really remarkable prices. So, I mean, while maybe you can find, you know, Ferrando from the 70s at other restaurants, I'm sure I know you can, but hopefully when you look at their prices, it's $100 more or something. So that people like, you know, that make sommelier kind of money can actually afford to drink him and enjoy it. And it's not just for the expense accounts. You know, other than that, I would say I just want to get to know New York a little bit better. Uh, we'll be here for a while, but, you know, it changes so fast that I don't want to miss out on anything. So hopefully, you know, having a great team behind me now, I can uh, get out and have a little bit more fun, continue to learn. But, I mean, I don't think that uh, I'll ch- much will change in terms of who I am this year. I don't think you'll see me, like, trying to rock as many wine and food festivals as possible or, or start uh, tweeting Instagram and, like, a maniac or anything like that. You're hurting feelings now, bro. (laughs) So looking back, you know, on your career, what would you tell the younger you in your 20s now that you're in your 30s? What would you say, you know, if you could go back and be like, hey, man, you know, maybe think about this a little bit more. What would be your advice to the younger you? I would say travel as much as you can, like while you're young and have no responsibilities. And then I would say, you know, in terms of work. You know, just skip college and that student debt altogether (laughs) (laughs) and get some life experience. But that's a personal thing. Uh, I had no business being in classrooms. I can't sit still for 20 minutes. But nobody ever tells you like when you're 17 and you can't sit still for, hey, maybe college isn't for you. You should find a field where like that's a plus. Right, right. Where you need to be moving all the time. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But I would say the best advice I can give to myself or somebody like that 20-year-old who's like, man, I love wine. How do I get into the business? This is hard. And the answer is find somebody you think is really smart 
who for whatever reason like doesn't hate you and took it you know takes a little bit of interest in you and just learn as much as you can from them and be an apprentice like just be a humble apprentice learn from them what you can and have them help you kind of grow because you're not going to do it on your own and you need some friends and some mentors if you actually want to learn seems like your path through wine kind of took you to bigger and bigger markets and so it may have been less evident to you that wine culture was changing but does it seem that wine culture has changed since the late 90s early 2000s for you in terms of what a sommelier does or what they can do yeah yeah i think it's changed uh, pretty dramatically one the fact that there are so many there's actually jobs for sommeliers now you know when i talk to like you know the willie shears or the larry stones and they're like yeah, everybody had one uh, psalm. He was he was the wine director, and he was the only one. So on his days off, there would just not be somebody if he took days off. You know that kind of thing. Even John Reagan at EMP when he started was just by himself. Yeah, exactly. That's such a great example. But now, you know what I found out when I was trying to hire psalms is that everybody has six psalms on their team. So it's so difficult to find psalms just because of that. Unless somebody is like hates their wine director. Or has just been at a place for five years, so they need to move on. It's really hard to find talent because there's, at least in New York, to a lesser extent, San Francisco, there's so many Psalms who have jobs already. So I would say that's a huge difference. I don't, I don't know what it's like. You know, it's been a number of years since I was in Cincinnati. I know it hasn't changed in Charlotte yet, but I don't know what it's like in the rest of the country in terms of if people are getting to hire Psalms besides a wine director and if people are noticing what a great uh, help that is not just to sales, but also the level of service your restaurant can give. But, you know, in terms of what people buy, I've definitely seen like, you know, through recessions, et cetera, uh, spikes and dips in, in what the average price of a bottle sold is. In New York right now, it seems it seems like business is pretty great. Nobody really blinks an eye at things that I would think that they would blink an eye at. Jeff Kellogg, he's had a long career in wine and a new entry into New York. Thank you very much for being here today. Thanks, Levy. Jeff Kellogg of Mylena. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, all drink to that pod.com. That's I L L drink to that pod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.